Hi everyone, welcome back to the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope everyone has had a wonderful uh, week and weekend. And uh, this weekend we had a pretty, it was kind of cool. We had a snow day, uh, snowed yesterday. It was about 25, 30 centimeters. And so kind of, it's nice waking up to a little bit of a winter wonderland. And um, hopefully though, that's like the last of the snow for uh, until next winter, because I, I am really looking forward to spring and summer. So hopefully we're kind of over that hump and then, and then part of me wonders how much of the snow is kind of um, geoengineered. <laughs> when I'm looking at it, I'm just like, how real is this snow? But anyway, so it was still nice waking up to a winter wonderland. Everything's just so much like so bright and pretty after a snowfall. Um, you know, and that's provided you don't have to drive in it. When you have to drive in it, then it becomes a little kind of a bit a bit of a different experience but um you know as long as you have the appropriate tires and everything else then you're probably fine um and that kind of uh, segues into um, a moment of gratitude you know just before I get started with the show I like to give a moment of gratitude and um kind of talk about the coffee I'm drinking just in case if you're you're new to listening um, this is the Quantum Heart Cafe, and so it's a show that's kind of where I talk about uh, books and give my thoughts and kind of relate what I'm learning in the books with what um, I've been learning and kind of seeing in the wider society around me. Um, and that's so that, you know, having a heartfelt uh, conversation, and I hope that this is also a channel or a podcast that people can use as reference, um, you know, now or in, in the future, um, just given with what what's going on in the world in terms of the attempted rollout of the Web 3.0 and uh, that sort of thing. So I hope that it's that that's kind of what the um, purpose of the show is to be. It, it kind of like a, a spiritual show, but trying to route it in are rooted in sort of what's been going on right now as well as the past because this book I'm going to be talking about worlds in collision the the first part um it's more so about telling the story of our history uh, and I think that is important too because to me the both the past and the future are are or the past and the present are, are both really important because I think it's just really important for me to understand like how we got here uh, and so that's kind of the purpose of the show. I know it's, maybe it's a little more vague, and I'm sure it'll get more clear as I keep doing these shows, but that's kind of the purpose of it. It's just, I hope that it's it's kind of my journey of, of an exploration of what's happening um, and what has happened, and I hope it inspires people to kind of uh, think about what they're going, or think kind of think about what... Uh, or think about spiritual things and think about what's going on now and to um, maybe go on their own journeys of exploration. And maybe this podcast will be almost like a, a library or a reference or a guide that people can use, uh, you know, as long as the, I guess, as long as there's the internet. Um, so that's kind of goes with, and so um, what I like to do is give a little bit of a moment of gratitude um, and, uh, I, I don't really do any prayer or anything like that, but maybe I'll, 
include a little bit of meditation in future shows. Um, but definitely gratitude and just kind of thinking about um, what I'm grateful for. And uh, I think this week is just, um, I'm grateful for learning how to enjoy life, if that makes sense. Like sometimes I can um, get too serious, if that makes sense, or get too caught up in the details and not just learning to kind of sit back and let go and maybe start to trust the universe a little bit <laughs> and maybe the universe's plans are better than my plans and that sort of thing so um and maybe part of that is just to sit back and try and enjoy life as best I can and, and reading this book to worlds in collision um kind of reinforces that a little bit just because of the contents of the book which I'll get to in a minute uh so that's what I'm grateful for is that I really I have had a realization over the the weekend that I really just need to you know calm down and relax and you know maybe I don't think maybe I don't need to take things as seriously as I do um maybe I can kind of have a balance of both or just you know try and learn to have more fun in life if that makes sense uh so that kind of and and when I uh, because I it's a cafe cafe podcast I do drink coffee and right now I'm drinking um, I'm back to drinking my decaffeinated coffee and uh, it's the same brand I have a little bit of it left so I just want to use it up before I go try and find a new uh, decaffeinated brand um, maybe I'll check out another there's a bunch of independent coffee shops around town so maybe I'll see if one of them has a decaffeinated coffee uh, next, for next week and see if, or next weekend when I um, record the next show and see what that, what that's like. Um, and then for today's show, so now, you know, so while I'm drinking my decaffeinated coffee, I will be talking about the book that I'm going to be uh, kind of reviewing and sharing my thoughts on, uh, which is Worlds in Collision by Emmanuel Vilikowski. Um, I first heard, learned about this book when I was reading uh, Vine Deloria's book, God is Red, and I, I did a show on that uh, a little while back, a few weeks, maybe towards, I think it was in January, and um, he talked about Emmanuel Velikovsky's book, Worlds in Collision, when he was talking about um, kind of like the, because uh, in that book, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. gives her to, uh, an indigenous a critique of world religions and in that book he spoke about uh the mass exodus that happened in Egypt when Moses was leading uh the people away from the Egyptians and they were kind of crossing uh the ocean and then there was like the the parting of the ocean and so people could cross and that was attributed I mean in the Bible they attribute that to the Lord um help stepping in to help out and helping the people cross safely. Uh, but Emmanuel Velikowski wrote this book, uh, Worlds in Collision, where he takes a look at different stories and different cultures from all around the world in order to find out what was happening during those um, kind of 
important moments in the Bible as well as other historical stories, uh, what was happening kind of in the celestial sphere, like what was happening in the cosmos. And so he was saying that um, there was a collision between Venus and Mars and it created all this energy, which is what parted the seas. And, And then there are other stories like the story of Noah and the flood and how, and then, you know, and in the book, um, Vine Deloria Jr. Uh, quotes Emmanuel's work saying that, um, you know, many different uh, cultures and spiritual dish traditions had stories about floods and, uh, and about massive floods that displaced and, and destroyed a lot of uh, civilizations throughout history. And I think, you know, and even, and, and this also includes uh, indigenous uh, nations which had a number of stories about a flood and how, you know, maybe they went underground or they went and climbed um, mountains to get away from the floods or moved to a different area. Uh, so that made me think, like, geez, you know, how much of the world don't I know about? Like, how much of world history and how much of the myths and legends really, um, you know, maybe... Those events are attributed to, you know, gods and goddesses and so on. But how? But what if they were more so um, the result of a cosmic event going on in the sky, like, you know, like the the chance of a comet flying over Earth, and then the meteorites that are in the comet's comet's tail falling to Earth and then causing a rain of fire that destroys a civilization which has happened throughout history. And so that's what really made me interested to read this book um, and also to learn, gain a different perspective than that of, um, you know, evolutionary biology. And and also now, too, that I've read The World Sensorium, this whole notion that there's, um, as well as re- after reading The uh, Pagans in the Promised Land, like this whole notion of some predetermined destiny or some uniform, like a uniform, slow, gradual evolution or emergent biology or this emergent being which is supposed to come into, according to the world sensorium, which is supposed to emerge in the future and become a world brain, you know, but there's like this assumption of a homeo state like a uniformity like this there's always this progress and I've often had a problem with that because I just you know the world's not uniform things happen there is chaotic events and um and that the book really kind of you know you know talks a bit about that you know like there hasn't been this there hasn't always been a a, a gentle gradual evolution, there have been catastrophes that have changed the face of the planet and the face of the climate. And I think one of the things in the first part of the book that Emmanuel Velikovsky talks about is warning people that, you know, if we're not careful, especially knowing, given that we have the ability of nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, that if we're not careful, we could also take out our own planet from the celestial um, 
the celestial uh, realm, so to speak, because you know he calls them the prince princes of the universe. I also include princesses because they're um, they're just people that you know think that they can play. There's a lot of scientists and people in the world right now that feel like they can play God with humans and other beings, and I think that that's a recipe for disaster. And so it's one of the reasons why. I chose to read this book as part of uh, the show, and I'm probably going to end up splitting it up into a few different parts because it's a bit, there's a lot, it's kind of like some of the other books I've read where there's a little more detail, and I don't want to rush through it, so um, I just focused on reading the first part of the book for this show, and then for the next show, um, I'm going to be reading the second part of the, well, the, the, the next part of the book, which is on Venus. Um, but for this show, I only read, I only wrote, or sorry, wrote, I only read the first part of the book, which is kind of just gives um, an, an overview of some of the different uh, origin theories of our solar system, as well as some of the theories and mysteries of our own planet Earth. It was really interesting. Um, and I will say, too, that um, Manuel Vilikovsky, when he wrote the book, uh, he got a lot of flack for it from the scientific community. Like, they were pretty mean and vicious to him. And I think it's only recently that his work is being... Um, that people are now going back to his work and learning about his work um, because it turns out a lot of the stuff that he wrote uh, was true. And I also want to say, uh, just to kind of give a, a caveat, I guess... This book was written in about, I think it was like the 1950s. So I don't, I haven't had a chance to check to see if maybe there were any updates or any uh, changes to what some of, some of the stuff he was talking about. Like uh, he does mention the nine planets and includes Pluto as the ninth planet, which I know in recent years, like the Pluto was given the status of a dwarf planet, which I don't understand. But anyway, so... For the sake of the show, I'm just going to focus on what he wrote at that time. and But there very well could be like changes or maybe science has kind of caught up and said that, yes, he's right or, or, or anything like, or something like that. So I'm not sure if that's happened or I'm not sure what the uh, most recent developments have been. So this is just a book that as kind of what he was writing about at that time and the theories and the different ways of the people had to understand the solar system and understand our planet at that time. And it could have changed. So I just wanted to put that out there just in case like people are listening and they're just like, Hey, that's, that's not accurate. That changed, you know, Jupiter has more moons than 11. I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so just saying that I'm reading this book at the time, from the from a time that from the time that it was written, which was in the fifties, and it's it's very well that you know it could change, and maybe there were, there has been more and more developments since then, especially with all the telescopes and so on that's been um, sent up into the skies. I'm sure there's been um, you know other discoveries since then. Okay, so the beginning of the book he talks about the the as the preface. Or preface, and or preface, I should say. Um, so Emanuel uh, Velikovsky says that laws are a deduction from experience and experiment, 
uh, they need to conform to historical fact and not the other way around. Um, and I guess science does that to to an extent now, where that it is that other way around, where it's um, historical fact needing to fit the the laws, not the other way around. So I do appreciate that. Like um, he tries to take the laws, and you'll see it throughout the book that the the laws that kind of been created from experience and experiment. And confirms that with historical fact, like he, he take he does he does take he was taking some of the uh, popular theories of the origin of our solar system and kind of comparing it to um, the science and comparing and also comparing our own history on the planet Earth, like the natural history with the records, the literary records of the people that lived at those t- during those time periods, which I think is really interesting. Um, and this book focuses on uh, great catastrophes that happened uh, throughout history, and one of them being the Exodus. Um, and he includes both uh, historical evidence from other cultures, as well as some of the uh, history, like the natural history that has uh, illuminated what's happened back then. Or illuminated what happened back then, sorry. Um, and then... Just as I said before, Emmanuel felt that if we are not careful, um, especially with the advent of nuclear fis- fusion and fission, that we could take our home out of the celestial sphere. And I feel the same way. And that's another reason why I want to read the, this book. It's, you know, I'm not so much concerned about natural catastrophes because they're not really in my, con- like I have no control over what the ha- the weather or anything like that. Um, what I am concerned about, especially with all this, you know, nanotechnology and, um, you know, this, these messing around with genetics and messing around with, like I was reading a story, um, from Alison McDowell's, uh, website, Wrench in the Gears. It was a letter from the labyrinth and the person who wrote the letter was sharing how, uh, scientists were putting wheat germs or wheat genes, sorry, into uh, chestnut trees. And I was just reading them, like, just like, how disrespectful to the both the wheat and the trees. And how do they know that that's not going to cause some catastrophic event? Because you're mixing two species that nature didn't intend to mix. And, and that's what I mean. Like, they're playing, they're playing around like they're little princes and princesses of the universe, like these godlike beings, but they really do run the risk of doing something that is catastrophic to all life on earth. And I think that, and that's why, you know, I, I want to read this book to find, learn more about the natural catastrophes while also understanding the human catastrophes that could come from uh, too much hubris and, and enabling that hubris on our part, um, Anyway, so I'll keep going. Uh, so chapter one is called The Immense Universe. Um, so this is, again, this is kind of where um, Emmanuel uh, talks about humans in terms of, and it's a certain uh, group of humans, not everyone thinks like this, 
um, but that mankind thinks of himself as a prince of creation, you know, this godlike being. You kind of saw it in Oliver L. Reiser's book, The World Sensorium, where they're kind of thinking that they're the uh, creme de la creme, if you will, you know, and that they're the ones that are to guide, like scientific humanism is the one to guide people on this social evolution towards like a, a world brain. I mean, Emmanuel doesn't talk about that in his book, but I'm just kind of making an, an um, allegory or analogy. Analogy, I think that's more so an, al an analogy anyway. Uh, and he then talks about the rise of Homo sapien to now Homo ignoramus. <laughs> and I will call these people ignoramus, ignoramuses because they are, you know, they're doing things that they think they know what they're doing, but I don't think they do. Um, these princes don't know what life is or how it came into being and if life uh, came from inorganic matter. Emmanuel's book challenges, uh, Emmanuel's book also challenges the notion of a harmonious or uniform uh, revolution, evolution of the earth and the constitution of the solar system. And upon reading the first, you know, few chapters of Emmanuel's book, I, I tend to agree. I don't think, uh, we live in as a harmonious universe or at least a harmonious solar system as we think we do um and he does pose some really good questions to the reader like in general um in when he talks about uh, in his chapter the celestial harmony you know he talks about you know did the sun always rise in the east and set in the west did we always have 365 days in a year and 24 hours in a day did we always have our seasons where fall follows summer and summer follows spring? Uh, we have nine planets in the solar system. Mercury and Venus have no satellites. Earth has one. Mars has two. Jupiter has 11, with 11 different kinds of month months to count. Saturn has nine planets. Uranus has five. Neptune has one. And Pluto, and Pluto has none. I remember back in the 50s, Pluto was considered a planet, and it could very well be that, you know, with the the satellites and the telescopes that they've launched into space since the 50s, that they may have discovered more moon, like more satellites around the planets. So these numbers were from that time in, in history. They could, they could very well be more, more discoveries since then, but they're still really important really interesting questions and they definitely gave me pause for reflection I'm just like did yeah did we always have 365 days in a year and it kind of reminded me too of the book I talked about last week which was about which is Mary or sorry Madeline Ingalls book Many Waters and in that book like uh because the the main characters they get sent back in time to when Noah's ark was or Noah was the time when the flood was just going to begin and so Noah was tasked with building the ship and at that time period human beings lived for hundreds hundreds of years whereas today um you know modern time we live to maybe um a century there are some centurions but that's a pretty much it we don't live as we definitely don't live for hundreds of years anymore um I mean that was just a story it's not historical fact but it kind of also gave me pause, food for thought, just thinking, like, did we always have 
was the earth always this way or was was it very different in different different time periods and after different ages and epochs and so on so i was it's very interesting it definitely gave me uh, something to think about and so to continue the celestial harmony chapter um Emmanuel also talks about how most planets revolve in a counterclockwise direction when you re when you view them from the north, but some do move retrograde. Now I'll get to this um, in a little bit. Uh, and no orbit is an exact cir circle, and each elliptical curve moves in a different direction. Um, Mars rotates in approximately 24 hours like the Earth, but Jupiter rotates in about nine hours even though it's bigger. And so I was thinking about that too. I'm just like, holy mac. Okay, so why is that? Like, why would, I mean, and maybe scientists have been able to, or astro astronomers have been able to answer this. Um, but, you know, why is it that Jupiter rotates faster than the Earth and Mars, even though Jupiter is bigger? Like, you would think that it would be the opposite, um, but it's not. And so that that was kind of interesting, and then like that in in of itself kind of challenges the whole notion of the of a uniformity because you'd think that in a uniform solar system that you know smaller planets or larger planets would take longer to rotate than the smaller ones. And he also st talked about how there's no real general law for the for like the the planets and the satellites in the sky because uh, not every planet and satellite needs to have an atmosphere or water like Earth does. Um, you know, and there's not a general rule that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west for all the other planets and satellites. And there's also not a general law that the planets and satellites have the same seasons that we do. Um, so really our celestial harmony is made up of heavenly bodies that each have different sizes, composition, orbits, etc. Like there are really amazing and mysterious differences between the the planets and the satellites, and I find that fascinating. Um. So, and then at the time, so the couple of in the um chapter origin of the planetary system. Emmanuel does talk about a couple of theories that were popular back then. I don't know if these theories have changed and uh, if they're no longer kind of in use or if they're still around. Um, but back in the 50s, he talked about uh, a couple of theories or more so hypothesis, but they called them theories. Um, the tidal and the nebula theory. Uh, so, and these two theories were uh, kind of the explanations for the origin of our solar system. Um, so for nebula, the nebula theory, um, it states that our solar system formed at the same time as our sun, uh, as described in a new, as our sun. Uh, the nuclear theory is the theory or hypothesis is the idea that a spinning cloud of dust made of mostly light light elements um, called a nebula uh, flattened into a protoplanetary disk and became a solar system consisting of a star with orbiting planets. 
The spinning nebulae collected the vast majority of the material in, in its center, uh, which is why the sun accounts for over 99% of the mass in our solar system. Uh, tidal theory, or the tidal hypothesis, uh, suggests that a star passed over our sun and the passing star caused a huge chunk of matter uh, to break away from our sun and eventually this matter became our solar system. Uh, earlier stages of the tidal theory called, or there were earlier stages of the tidal theory and they were called uh, planetismal, called the planetismal hypothesis. And according to this hypothesis, some matter fell back into the sun, uh, some matter left the solar system, and the remaining matter uh, formed into our planets and satellites. Uh, so the so Emmanuel also talked about the difficulties with uh, the tidal theory, um, as well as the difficulties with the nebula theory, but I'll just talk about uh, some of the difficulties with the tidal theory first. Um, so the first difficulty is the mass of our planets. Uh, between Earth and Jupiter is Mars, which has a tenth of the mass of Earth. But according to the tidal theory, there should be a large planet, uh, is, or it should be a large planet instead. Um, and uh, another difficulty is that all the masses of our, of our planets vary. Um, and then, of course, the um, the rare event, one of the, the other difficulties is the rare event that you'll have two stars meet each other in the sky. Um, so, both the, so both the nebula and tidal theory uh, think that the planets came from the sun and the sa satellites came from the planets. And tidal theory thinks that the moon was torn out of the earth via the sun during an orbit when Earth got too close to the sun and that resulted in the uh, a chunk of matter being split from the Earth which became the moon. And again, this is a very rare event where you know, two celestial bodies pass each other like that, and then and one ends up tearing matter out of the other. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty rare, and for that to happen, and Emmanuel was saying for that to happen two times, like that's it's pretty. Like the probability of having that is pretty low. <clears throat> and then some of the difficulties of the nebular hypothesis um, is the way the satellites <laughs> revolve around the planets um, challenge this theory which assumes that the planets and satellites move in the same direction but there are satellites that don't fit into that uh, theory because there are some that move retrograde uh, Uranus's moons rotate perpendicular to the planet's orbital plane and one of uh, Saturn's moons and three of Saturn's or sorry three of Jupiter's moons uh, move in a retrograde fashion as well. Um, so the nebula theory uh, couldn't produce, and so basically Emmanuel was saying that according to the nebula theory, they couldn't produce celestial being or celestial bodies that rotate in two different directions. Um, and the tidal theory also doesn't really take into account retrograde planets, or sorry, retrograde satellites. Um, because it just says that when the sun passed the, or when the sun, or sorry, when the star passed the sun and that matter came out, 
that everything moved in one direction, it didn't take into account the retrogrades. And then in another um, uh, section in the chapter, um, Emmanuel talks about the origin of comets, which I thought was really interesting too. Um, both tidal and nebular theory don't have an exp explanation for the origin of comets. Uh, at the time, it was estimated that 60 comets orbit our solar system, which are called short period comets, or comets. And then there are many visiting comets, which are long period comets. Uh, so short period comets usually take 80 years to revolve around our solar system. And with the exception of one comet, the orbits don't generally go past Neptune. Um, theories on the origin of the solar system have often left out comets and uh, other celestial bodies and where they came from. So there's one theory, he does talk about one theory about the origin of comets, and it's called capture theory. Um, and so this theory tries to account for where the comets came from in our solar system. Um, and it states that long period comets would come into our solar system. And if they got close to one of the large planets, the, the force of the large planet would kind of attract them or, or capture them, so to speak, like they would get captured in the solar system. And so they would become uh, the short period comets, um, but the capture theory doesn't take into account where the long period comets came from in, like, where they f they came from from anyway. Like they don't really take into account where those long comets or long period comets came from in the first place. They only talk about like how the short period comets, um, like where they came from, which is when uh, the long period comet. Uh, got captured by one of the large planets. Um, another theory is that comets came out of the sun through matter being ejected by the sun. Um, and there's also a similar or alternative theory where uh, the large planets do that. Uh, so if the matter being ejected from the sun or the large planets has enough escape velocity, then they can escape the, the sun or the, the large planet and become a comet. Uh, and that's kind of the theory about, those are the main theories about where the comets came from, or where the origin of comets are, or where they came from. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if there's other theories or other, um, explanations that have been kind of come to surface recently. Um, the, again, this is only, uh, what I read in the book, which was written during the fifth, like, or which was written during the 50s. Um, so I'm not sure what sort of updates or if people have proposed other um, theories or hypotheses since then. <clears throat> so in chapter two, Emmanuel um, also starts to talk about the planet Earth and kind of like the composition of our Earth and some of the interesting uh, mysteries and events that have happened uh, in the past. And so in the in the first part of the chapter he gives a comp he talks about the composition of our earth and how uh, earth's original crust is made up of igneous rock which is usually composed of basalt and granite. 
uh, he then talks about how sedimentary rock is then layered on top of the igneous rock through water de depositing on the sediment. Uh, and then each layer of the sediment tells a story about our Earth's history, and we take it for granted that we live in a harmonious state where progress is uniform. That part, of, that last part, I kind of added in there myself. Um, you know, but, but I got, I did that because it's just, you know, he was saying that, or he was quoting someone saying that when we begin digging beneath our feet, it reveals a very different story than one that's, you know, some sort of harmonious, uh, progressive history, that there have been catastrophes and cataclysms throughout the past. Um, he also does reference uh, a, a guy named Curver, I think, and uh, Curvier thought that um, had a lot of interesting theories and ideas about the history of Earth and what happened throughout the ages. And uh, Curvier thought that great catastrophes had taken place on this Earth, uh, repeatedly changing seabeds into continents and continents into seabeds. He held that uh, genera and species were unchangeable since uh, creation, but observing different animal remains at various levels of the Earth, he concluded that catastrophes must have annihilated Earth in vast areas leaving the ground for other forms of life. Uh, where did these other uh, genera come from? Either they were newly created, or they likely, or more likely they not migrated from other parts of the world, which were not at the time also visit, visited by cataclysms. Uh, Curvier could not find the cause of these cataclysms. He saw in their traces the problem in geology, is it is of most importance to solve, uh, but he realized that in order to solve it satisfactorily, it would be necessary to discover the cause of these events, uh, an undertaking which presents a difficulty of quite a different kind. Um, so the, I just wanted to uh, quote that because I kind of I thought it was really interesting because I I grew up. You know, learning about uh, Darwin's theory of uh, evolutionary uh, biology in school, and so I never really thought about um, cataclysms, and I never really thought about how, through natural disasters, that the Earth had been changed, or how much the Earth has been changed from those types of uh, catastrophic events. Because it was just assumed that, you know, everything moved in a progressive, linear uh, fashion from what I learned in school. Like, it, we, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of, of uh, Curvier or that, you know, different forms of life were annihilated in certain parts of the world while other parts life flourished and vice versa. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Curvier's work was put on the back burner um, and kind of eclipsed by evolutionary biology and every evolutionary geolo geology, which kind of took their forefront. So Curvier's uh, thoughts and theories were sort of buried after that. But I, I do like the fact that Emmanuel included a lot of that, those theories in this chapter, uh, which I found kind of uh, really interesting.
Um, so some of the geological, so I am going to talk a little bit about geological evolution, um, because Emmanuel, uh, does talk about it, uh, throughout this chapter and geological evolution. Um, so it's thought that sediment was the detritus of igneous rock, um, that the rain erodes the igneous rock and carries the deposits to the sea. Um, then animals that get too close to the ocean uh, would drown, and their skeletons would eventually become part of the sediment. Uh, so that, and this is that slow, progressive evol evolution that geological evolution talks about, and biological evolution kind of says similar, something similar, but about uh, organic species. Um, and in both theories, there's no mention of major disasters. At least at the time, there wasn't. Um, and so Emmanuel kind of asks, poses a really good question, um, kind of challenging this geological evolution. And he says that if the shells, uh, that there were shells found in the Himalayas, um, in the sedimentary rock, um, and he's wondering... Uh, you know, what caused the mountains to rise? You know, because oh, obviously there's no ocean up there. And he's also said that in former times there was a great flood uh, across the plains uh, in, the, in America from Alaska to Mexico. Uh, then the water retreated. So he's wondering, like, what caused that change? And Antarctica once had forests and the polar region near uh, Spitsbergen had coral reefs, so what caused the change? And, you know, so far, geological, unless it's, again, it, it could have changed, and I think a lot of people have realized that Emmanuel was right, because even the people that vilified him uh, eventually came around, and I think some of them were even disgusting enough to try and pass off his work as theirs. Um, so... Um, so yeah, those are the some of the questions he poses that sort of challenges the that slow progressive evolution that geological evolution talks about. Um, and then he also does have a chapter devoted to the ice age, um, and he Emmanuel uh, talks about a force that causes the ice to advance and to retreat, um, but this force remains unknown, and maybe maybe that's changed now. Um, but at the time when he wrote the book, it, that force wasn't known. Um, some people have thought that we passed through hot and cold regions in our solar system, which causes the ice age. Um, and then there are some other theories that, uh, kind of about the ice age in the book. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have a chance to read those, but I mean, I highly recommend picking up this book and reading it yourself. It's an amazing, it's a really fascinating read. And I'm quite enjoying it, enjoying it so far. So I won't, I haven't been able to include everything in the book. Um, but there are some other theories about the Ice Age that he talks about. Um, he then also talks about, of course, challenges with some of these Ice Age theories. Um, one of them being that there must have been a large amount of rain to create that much ice over the Earth. And um, that there must have been a very quick freezing that followed that rain. Uh, so there was so it's thought that there was uh, a large evaporation of the oceans, followed by a quick 
quick freezing. Um, so he, you know, but he poses the question, like, what would have caused that mass evaporation from the ocean and quick, and then the quick freezing that followed. Um, and then there was, there was certain, like, and he also brings up the question of uh, the geographic region of the ice formation, uh, which also poses a challenge to some of the ice age uh, theories. Um, for example, why did the glacier in the south move from Africa to the South Pole? Uh, why did the glacier in the north move from India to Himalayas or to the Himalayas? Um, why did the glaciers cover some re regions but not others? And if glaciers stay in the coldest region, then why didn't they form in Siberia, which is one of the coldest regions in the planet? Um, but they formed in the southern region of Africa, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot warmer than uh, Siberia. And then he also talks about the mammoths that were found in the ice, um, especially around Siberia. So he talks about how Siberia has another mystery, uh, which is the sudden change in climate that caused many of the species, including mammoths, to disappear. According to the theory of biological evolution, the mammoths went extinct because they were unfit, but it turns out that they were more advanced than our modern-day elephants. Um, the theory also doesn't account for... Because in the book, he talks about how when they discovered the mammoths in the ice, that they were perfectly preserved, and that even some of the dogs that were with the expedition ate the mammoth meat, and they were fine. Like They didn't get sick or anything like that because they were perfectly preserved in the ice. Um, so they went, so that means that they went extinct at the end of the ice age. And so and what killed them off must have been sudden. And the freezing that followed also must have been uh, pretty quick. Like there wasn't a lot of time for, you know, any, there wasn't a lot of time in between. It, it happened all of a sudden. Like it wasn't a, a slow and gradual extinction. Or it wasn't because the mammoths couldn't adapt to their environment anymore. Um, and then the mammoths also didn't starve, die from starvation because grass and plants were found in the remains of their stomach and between their teeth. And the plants that were found in the contents of the mammoths' stomachs also didn't grow in the region the mammoths' bodies were found. They grew further south. So that uh, the theory of evolution doesn't really take any of that stuff into account. Uh, and then he also talks about, um, in the chapter, the Ice Age and Antiquity of Man. And this is where he starts to compare natural records with uh, literary and spiritual records from um, cultures uh, that are from cultures all over the world. Um, which I thought was is pretty interesting it, because the glacial period ended maybe about 5,000 to 7,000 years ago. Um, and he's, you know, he uses those, the, that comparison of the natural uh, records and the liter literary records of ancient man to learn more about what happened. Uh, and then one of my favorite chapters, actually the last couple of chapters are pretty fascinating to read, 
Uh, one of them is the world ages. Uh, so ages were commonly known to have ended via natural catastrophe by people throughout the world. Uh, many ancient cultures, such as the Greeks, thought that Earth goes through regular deluge and combustion, uh, like a it is it like a a cycle of destruction, then a cycle of recreation. Um, both Greek and uh, Bengal thought four four ages have passed, and that we are currently on the fifth age. And then in some of the sacred Hindu texts, it it's thought that ages are separated, or it's also thought that ages are separated by a catastrophe and that we and that there are seven ages i'm not sure according to them which age we're in right now um but that the the destruction of those civilizations are often it, it's often done either through water fire or air um so those are the common methods that have um or common elements that have been involved in some of the major catastrophes throughout history. Um, and then there's also references to ages and destructions uh, found in ancient Persian records as well. Um, and they speak of the signs, wonders, and perplexity which are manifest in the world at the end of each millennium. Uh, and then there's also a number of stone in encryption or inscriptions um, which tell the story of major uh, catastrophes in both the Maya, Inca, and Aztec cultures. Um, and then many of this, or and then it's also referenced too that human beings existed before these catastrophes happened, and that human beings have been around for a while. And this kind of reminds me of, um, like I did start reading some of Rudolf Steiner's work, um, especially his book on the esoteric science and how like our our current soul, like human beings as well as other celestial beings like angels archangels and seraphim and so on have kind of evolved uh throughout ages as well and that like back then like, there were times when we were in a, like, a gaseous state and we didn't have an etheric body yet, and then over a period of time we gained those things through evolution, but also through the help of celestial beings like angels and archangels and so on. Um, I haven't had a chance to completely read through that book, but this reading Worlds in, in Collision really reminds me of that. And Emmanuel, he doesn't uh, reference, or he hasn't so far referenced any of the Steiner, or any of Steiner's work. I'm just making that um, I'm just kind of trying to, I just kind of feel like the, that connection on my own, like I'm not, it's not, uh, Rudolf Steiner is not referenced in the book. Um, and then also, um, the Pacific, uh, like the Hawaiian and Polynesian and the Icelanders also believe that there are nine different ages, um, and that we used to live under a different sky from what we live in now, which, which was pretty interesting um and then i think one of the last chapters in the book is on the sun age and what's really interesting is that um in the cosmological traditions of many people all over all over the world sun is also another term for age which i thought was really fascinating i didn't know that and um 
the Mayas, the, May, the Mayas counted their ages via the sun, uh, such as the water sun, earthquake sun, hurricane sun, and fire sun. Uh, so the water sun was the first age, and that was terminated by a major flood. And then uh, the next age was the earthquake, or next was the earthquake sun. Um, and that age was terminated by the earth breaking and mountains falling. Um, and then the hurricane sun uh, followed that afterwards, and there was a cosmic hurricane that terminated that uh, that civilization. And then the last age um, was the fire sun age, which was terminated by a rain of fire from the sky. And I guess we're at, you know we're in the current age now. <clears throat> And what was really interesting is that there was a, um, according, according to the Maya, there was a pro predominance of one of the four elements in each catastrophe. Um, and the four elements would be water, air, earth, and fire. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and it gave me some food for thought because I've also been learning about tarot cards. And... Anyway, I'll I'll get into that maybe with next week because uh, I'm I'm still kind of formulating thoughts around that, but it's so far it's really interesting. <clears throat> um, and even the Buddhists have a sacred book um, that talks about world cycles um, with three destructions: one by water, one by fire, one by air. And <clears throat> so that kind of concludes the first part of this. Uh, series on the world on worlds in collision and what I thought was interesting was that each culture from around the world acknowledges that there have been catastrophes major ones um, and that after these destructions uh, humanity sort of had to start all over again um, and that kind of gave me some food for thought not just for my life but just kind of what's going on now and that's where I thought about um, the man-made catastrophes that could come from you know these uh, I guess princes of the universe and scientists that you know ignoramuses that think that they can play God which I feel like would set off or which I feel could really potentially set off um, a major c catastrophe that we can't reverse. And so, you know, I just, natural disasters are one thing, you know, like I said before, you can't really control those. Although I wonder if, you know, as we learn to get back in touch with the natural rhythms of the earth and so on, that perhaps warnings, you know, we can pick up warnings and about impending catastrophes and act, sorry, act accordingly. Um, but that kind of requires us to kind of get back in touch with the natural rhythms and cycles of the earth and the cosmos. And I think some people are, but definitely Western society as it is now is more, is kind of a lot more disconnected from that um, than other cultures. And you know, that's why I think that reconnection to nature and reconnection to cosmos and spiritual things is really important because, you know, um, it does make life a little more meaningful, but then maybe also we can receive warnings about, you know, a possible 
catastrophe or something and then move accordingly as best we can. I mean, there's only so much you can do or something like that, but, um, you know, there's, there's a natural cycle of expansion and contraction in the world and in the cosmos. And, you know, that's another why, reason why I don't really like this whole, like, idea of never-ending progress because it's not true. There is going to be a time of con contraction, like things, you know, getting, like, slowing down or, um, you know, things are cyclical. They're not, they don't really move in one linear fashion. It's cyclical. And, you know, like, even the season, the seasons, our, our current seasons, are moving cycles, like the, um, you know, things become alive and expand in summer and, and spring, or spring and summer, and then things contract with fall and winter, and then the cycle begins all over again. Same thing with human life, you know, we have a period of expansion, and then we also have a, a period of contraction and finally death, but then the, the cycle starts all over again with a new life. So... Uh, I think that this notion of never-ending progress in the, especially Western science and Western like thinking is really kind of um, stuck or obsessed with it, and I just think that it could lead it to, there's the potential to lead to a disaster, uh, to a, a disastrous result. And I think that we can choose differently. I really do, and I think that Human beings are, are capable of a lot more than that. And, um, you know, the kid, you know, kids and future generations probably, you know, deserve better and they can do, and we can do better than just what Western thinking and this whole idea of progress and never ending progress kind of pushes on us. And, you know, especially with this whole wanting to create this world brain and world sensorium and blockchain and data and so on. So, you know, it really kind of, this book has really um, made me reflect on that and just reflect also on how precious life is. And that's kind of where I got, like, maybe I should learn to enjoy life a little bit more because you don't know if things change on a dime. And, you know, the earth, she has her own cycles and, and, and so on. So, you know, you can't, sometimes you can't really do anything. Some things are just faded. Um, but what you can do is try and, or at least what I can do is try and enjoy life as, as best I can. So with that being said, I think that the show has kind of gone on a little longer. So next, or long enough. So next week, I'm going to be talking about um, the, the section on Venus. Because I guess Venus wasn't always in our sky, you know. Um, and when I learned that, that I first read that in Vine Deloria's book, and I was like both shocked and intrigued. I'm just like, oh, I must learn more. So next week I'm going to be sharing uh, what I learned in that section. Um, and then uh, following Venus is Mars, but I probably won't get to that till like the following show because there's already a lot of information packed into the part about Venus. Um, so with that being said, thank you all for stopping by the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I wish you all a blessed week and a heartfelt week, and uh, st thanks for stopping by. Take care.